Hello, and welcome to Conference Room C, where the culture meets. I'm your host, Dr. A, and today we're talking about the new wave, Gen Y and Z at work. With each passing year, the landscape of the U.S. workforce is changing to become less and less boomer and very much millennial and centennial. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics approximates that currently 50% of the U.S. workforce is millennial. It is estimated that by 2030, that number will rise to 75%. And who will fill the remaining percentage? The new generation, of course, those Gen Zers who are still really learning about. Generational dynamics have always interested me. Being a millennial who is married to an Xer and also the daughter of boomer parents with Gen X siblings and Gen Z nieces and nephews, the alphabet soup really, I have to say about my experiences that there's definitely something to those little descriptions you see of the different generations. But that's family. So there's often more of an openness and opportunity to learn about what makes us different based on when we were born. In the workspace, dynamics between generations can play out much differently, of course, with there sometimes being frustrations about perceived work ethic, paying your dues, being stuck in your ways, etc., etc. You've heard it all before. Let's take a step back and review how we got here. Around the beginning of the new millennium, the workspace influx of these people called millennials who were born starting around 1980. The entrance of millennials into the workforce was considered a type of new wave because being the first global generation raised in the technology age, their experiences, behaviors, attitudes, and skills were vastly different than previous generations. Fast forward to now, when the first classes of centennials who were born starting around 1997 have graduated high school and maybe even college and started entering the workforce. Needless to say, things have gotten shaken up once again by another new wave. The workspace now has to accommodate a new generation that is not as similar to the last generation as we like to think. According to businessinsider.com, Gen Zers are more dependent on mobile technology and are even more global, social justice-minded, and entrepreneurial than millennials. As we've all seen, businesses have also made adaptations to cater to the ever-evolving landscape of the workforce. In general, they're paying more attention to social responsibility because they know that's important to younger generations. Businesses are leaving room for employees to redefine work-life balance, which includes an appreciation and sometimes even encouragement of the entrepreneurial spirit. It's smart business. As the workforce gets younger, so do consumers. But through all of these workspace shifts, there seems to be a forgotten piece. And emerging research supports this notion. In some aspects, solid inclusion efforts that focus on race seem to be largely a thing of the past, or at least less of a focus now. Now that we're some years into millennials' presence in the workforce, we're learning more about how this generation is affected by racism and bias at work. According to a new report titled Black in Corporate America, released by the Center for Talent Innovation, the overall state of Black professionals in corporate America has shifted much over the past years. When speaking on millennials specifically, the report offered some valuable insights. One, the study found generational differences in attitudes. Baby boomers and Gen Xers tended to be more comfortable with the status quo than millennials are. Two, according to the survey, 
Black millennials are more likely than the Black professionals who came before them to feel they have a responsibility to represent their race. And they are more likely to feel they should bring their authentic selves to the office. And lastly, millennials are more likely to be dreaming about leaving their current job if the one they have does not offer fair and ample opportunities for growth, creating the risk of a costly brain drain. My current thinking is we can't keep going this way. I think it's too early to tell how Black professional Gen Zers will experience the workspace. However, we can definitely glean insights from millennials' experiences so that we can ensure a more inclusive workspace, less institutional barriers, and even greater success for the next generation. I'm so excited to have Gabriela Tavares here, also known as Gabby, in the conference room to discuss. Gabriela was born and raised in Lawrence, Massachusetts, to a family of immigrants who came to the United States from Dominican Republic over 30 years ago. Throughout her life, she had to overcome many adversities, such as being the child of an incarcerated parent who was then deported, surviving sexual assault as a child, growing up surrounded by poverty in a single-parent household, and losing a friend to gun and gang violence. While life hasn't always been easy, these life experiences taught her to grow rapidly. She learned valuable lessons and found a way to turn her scars into stars. This led her to competing for the title of Miss Massachusetts multiple times, which she then eventually won, becoming the first Black person to hold the title. This honor took her to the Miss America stage, where she won preliminary interviews slash onstage questions, the Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics Award, People's Choice, and placing as fourth runner-up in top five at Miss America. Being a Latina, Gabriela knew that regardless of her circumstances, she was strong enough to get through anything. She knew she had the grit and the intelligence to make her way through any situation. Prior to winning Miss Massachusetts, she worked as a professional recruiter for Insight Global, the second largest professional services company in the country, where she managed 40 plus individuals within the accounting, finance, engineering, and pharmaceutical space. Working as a recruiter, Gabriela gained insight about the work we have done as a society to enhance and promote black and brown people in the corporate workspace. However, it truly showed how much work there is still left to do. She hopes to have a career as a businesswoman who also works in the entertainment industry as a talk show host where she can help provide insight on life to others in ways she has received them. She hopes that people view their fears as a driving force to push them to do better for themselves because they deserve the world and nobody is going to give it to them. They'll have to take it just like she did. Gabby, what an honor to have you here in Conference Room C. How are you doing today, first of all? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. We have so much to talk about. I can't wait to pick your brain about all this stuff with your recruiting background and your experiences and such visible roles. That's where I want to start, if that's okay with you. Now, for someone who doesn't follow pageants or have never um, been in them, I have experience with pageants. So I realized that it really being a pageant title holder is a job in its own. Even if you hold a full-time job at the same time, and it's more something you do on the side. It's really like having a career. And as Miss Massachusetts, I'm assuming this is something you did largely full-time. In that role, with Miss Massachusetts being your job, what were your three key takeaways from your tenure serving as the first Afro-Latina Miss Massachusetts? Okay, my first really big one is everyone is going to tell you about yourself. And at some point you have to have a level of discernment to understand what is for you and what is not for you. Uh, Because when you become a public figure, even though I wouldn't necessarily say like people would always make this joke, like you're famous. I'm not, I wasn't never famous. I just think I was put in a more visible position. One thing was everyone always felt like they knew me more than I knew myself. So that was the first takeaway. And the second one would be to always be flexible because 
because you really think that you can plan every second of every day. But then when you get into those kinds of positions, you really understand that you're in the business of people and people are unpredictable, sometimes unreliable, but ultimately they're always going to make the best decisions for themselves. So that was a really big other takeaway that I walked away with. And then lastly, I would probably say that it taught me to always be very empathetic of others, which I've always thought and viewed other people that way just because I always wanted that similar level of empathy from others because they didn't necessarily understand my background or where I was coming from. However, I really did see people who, you know, one day I could be talking to the governor and the next day I could be in a a PTSD recovery center. So I really worked with every single level of like people that exist and really just learned how to treat everyone the same, but also to just really be empathetic because we truly don't understand what other people are dealing with. I love that, Gabby, because I think that's one thing we forget to do uh, in every day, just trying to connect with others, even if at first sight or first listen, it doesn't seem like we have anything in common with them. And that that human connection is so important. So it is. It is. Uh, as I talked about a little in my opener, Black and Latino and Latina millennials are often categorized as having more opportunity than those before them. But some research suggests that in the workspace, they feel affected by racism in similar measure to previous generations. Have you had any experiences in the workspace that make these findings seem true? Here's the thing about being an Afro-Latina. So on one hand, you're Latin, right? So that's Mm -hmm. a whole culture. Because right now there's that big debate about what does it mean to be Black? Is being Black solely being African-American? Or are there different levels of Blackness? Or or is Blackness even a spectrum almost, we could say? Or we could ask. So being Latina, I was always just raised to know I was Dominican, but then to later find out I was also part Haitian. Like I was in fact Black. So we have found that people look at me and they automatically just assume, well, I mean, I guess she could be Black, but she's not actually Black. And that might be where I would find discrimination. It was because people felt comfortable making comments that were racially aggressive. And they thought that it wouldn't be something that directly pertained to me just because I was a Latina, completely negating the fact that before people even read my name or hear my accent, that I'm black. It's one of those things where my boyfriend and I had this conversation. Sure, I'm, I'm Dominican, but I'm black before I'm Dominican. Because when you see me, you wouldn't know the difference unless if you took the time to genuinely get to know me. So there have been instances where I have experienced it. Like maybe I'm at work and someone says the N word because it's in a song or, you know, someone makes a comment about Latin people and like cleaning or whatever, you know, make stereotypical remarks. And in those kind of instances, all you can really do is just stand up for yourself and to create that boundary and letting them know, hey, I, I see what you did. I heard what you said. That's not okay. And I'm creating this boundary to let you know that whether or not you believe I subscribe to this demographic of people, I am a part of it. So I need you to respect me as such. See, this is why I'm so pleased already. This is why it was so important for me to get your voice on this season because I'm a huge fan of the the diaspora. I believe that anyone who has heritage, you know, back to, to Africa, basically, we all can share similar experiences and we have a common connection. So I understand fully that you can be both Black and in Latin. But of course, that is a major debate that's going on in America today. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? What kind of effect does it have? So I really appreciate you sharing um, those examples. And I've actually got into 
the next question I had for you. Because on this show, we really try to explain at every opportunity how intersectionality plays out in the workspace. It's not something that we readily talk about. We look at someone and we take what we see and we kind of run with it. Can you describe any other experiences in the workspace that you feel you encountered because of your age, you're young, you're a Black Latina, or even because you're a woman? And have any of these experiences resulted from a reaction to just one of those identities in your perception? Or is it always a myth? There's been a few situations. The one that I can easily just pops out of my head is, so my little, I have a little sister and a little brother, and we all look very different. Like when we do our family portraits, I'm like the black speck there. And I'm not even dark, but I was the black. Now we're adopting a girl and she's black. Like she's African-American black. So I'm no longer the only black child. It's just great. My life, it was just me. So there's me and then my little sister. Her name is Elizabeth. And she is very white, very fair skin. She has very strong, like Asian looking eyes and just pale skin and long black hair. And then there's my little brother who looks like he's Italian. He has this super strange, like straight wavy hair. No one knows where he got it from. His skin is an olive tone. Like he, he can tan, but he can be pale. It's very strange. So my sister and I, there was one portion of our lives where we both worked at the same place. We both worked at this restaurant and people knew that we were related and that I was their sister. And I had a former manager who used to go out of his way to say things like, I don't know why your sister does beauty padding at her. Like She's so ugly. She looks like a monkey. He just called me all these awful things. He was saying and that about you? Yeah, but the funny thing was, the ironic thing is he would never say it to my face. He would always mm-hmm. say it to my little sister. Mm. So my little sister, because he would tell my sister, like, you're so beautiful. Why is your sister so ugly? And like, how does she do beauty pageants? She is not pretty at all. And um, he was Mexican too. So I was like, okay, this is a lot of level of colorisms, but we'll leave it alone for now. And he would say these things to my little sister and she would constantly have to defend me. And I remember getting to the point where I just confronted him and said, listen, I understand that you might have your own set level of beauty, but that has nothing to do with me. So you need to stop telling my little sister these things because it's not right for my little sister to have to defend me to someone whom I don't need to be defended to because ultimately your opinions of me do not matter. And that was really important to create that boundary because it really just goes to show how two people can be connected, myself and my little sister, and look different and how people can go out of their way to almost try to create that divide in saying you're beautiful and you're ugly just based off of how you look. So that was something that really did pop up to me. But I mean, again, going back to the whole, you know, when someone said the the N-word when I was at work, I mean, that was really one of those situations where people knew I was Dominican. But they didn't think I would be offended if they did things that were just inappropriate and just culturally unacceptable. So it was one of those things where I had to kind of show people, yes, I'm Latin, but I'm Black too. Don't forget that. Because you can't just think you can treat me as one and just forget the other. Well, first of all, Gabby, this is a clean show. So I can't say what I really want to say in response to your manager. I know. I was like, have you lost it? And then it was funny because when I went to Miss America, and so I ended up quitting that job because I hated him. And I went to, that's when I started working as a recruiter. And when I went and worked as a recruiter, and then I did this, and I went to Miss America, and I made top five, and I won all these awards. I remember going back to that restaurant because like, I'm not going to lie. They have bomb guacamole. So (laughs) a girl was there for some guacamole. Um, But I went there to eat with my family. 
And my little sister would like pull out her phone and be like, um, hello. Yes. Look at my sister, fourth <laughs> runner up at Miss America. Are you looking? She's beautiful and smart. Yeah. Look at these, these awards she got. So I don't believe in having to prove anything to people. I just kind of, it's like Beyonce says, best revenge is your paper. Yeah. So best revenge was my paper. <laughs> Absolutely. And you are, you're gorgeous. But the story you shared about your family just looking very different. I can also relate. I'm fair skinned. I hate saying fair skinned, but you know, I'm light skinned as we say in the community and no one in my family besides my grandmother is as bright as me. Um, so I have five siblings and we're all, we're kind of like the rainbow. We're, we're, we're I love different that. complexions. Yeah. The rainbow. <laughs> yeah. So there were times my oldest brother is is chocolate. And so there are times we'd be together and people would be like, you know, that's not your little sister or whatever. So I definitely relate to that. But it's so important to understand that as members of the diaspora, whether we're Black, Latin, or African American, there's so much mixture in there. But that doesn't negate our Blackness. And I just think that's such an important message for listeners because I've also been in situations where people have said negative things about Black people thinking that I, I won't care because they assume I have a, a white parent or some other parent and that that's what I'm aligning myself with. So I'm always quick also to, yeah. uh, or to remind people, um, Black woman here, you know, you might want to watch yeah, yourself. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, even when I was in the sixth grade, I used to go to this middle school where the if you were in sixth grade, you could go pick up your siblings if they were in preschool. So I remember picking up my little sister in preschool, bringing her back. And <laughs> the teacher that we had was, I guess she was new. I'm assuming she had to be new. But she was like, oh, like, is this your cousin? And I was <laughs> like, no. And she's like, oh, is this like, like, are, are, are you adopted? And I was like, no. And like, is she adopted? And I, at the time I was kind of like, you're asking a lot of questions, lady. Like, what are you, what, where are you getting out here? And I was like, no, this is my little sister. And she's like, no, there's no way that's your little sister. And I was like, yes, it is my little sister. So it is one of those things you where people just, don't, I, they almost don't think before they see. Yeah. And you never know. I mean, it's genetic. And I just think that the beauty of being black. So as someone with extensive experience in corporate America and speaking on behalf of Gen Z and millennials, what do you feel are the top three skills young Black professionals need to get to the C-suite despite some possible institutional barriers? Well, institutional barriers are really difficult. A lot of the time, people just allow them to remain there because they think, you know, don't fix what ain't broke. And that's a very dangerous mindset to have because there was the McKesson study showed that if you diversified your executives, then you would see a 40% increase in your revenue. So I think a lot of companies are starting to miss out on this great opportunity. And if ultimately for corporations, if their bottom line is to make money, then they're missing out on a huge opportunity to make money because they're not diversifying their workforce. So back to your question of like the three top skills, I would have to say it's one, one of the things I think is really interesting. is so I come from a PWI background where I went to private school, went to private middle school. And my first for elementary school, I was around other brown and black kids because it was one of those private schools where it's like all the Spanish kids go. And then I transitioned over to a school that was predominantly white. And I, when I made that shift, I was so uncomfortable in that space and I didn't really know what to do, but I just had to figure out how to maneuver it, which was helpful because then when I went to high school, I was in another PWI. And then when I went to college, I was in another one. And then when I went to work, I was in another one. So it just kind of became a trend where I was like, wow, okay. I went from like literally being surrounded by a bunch of Spanish people and black people to now I'm surrounded by a bunch of white people, which was fine. But if you don't know how to maneuver it, then it's a very uncomfortable space. So for me, I think the big thing 
is you have to know who you are before you step into that space. Because if you don't know who you are, you're going to step into it and you're going to get lost. You're going to get confused and you're going to get walked over. So knowing who you are, knowing your boundaries, knowing what you will and will not accept. And also, this is, I guess my second one would be is not what you're saying. It's how you're saying it. That is so imperative. Because when I went to school and I was on the science living learning community floor at Emmanuel College in Boston, Massachusetts is supposed to be a very liberal state. Yeah, I ended up in a school where pretty much everybody was from Connecticut. Like everybody, like Connecticut people love Boston apparently. So I was on a floor where I was like one of me or like maybe two black people on the entire floor. And we were in this space where I was like, okay, well now I have to live with these two women who are white and I've never done that before. And they question everything I do and they question everything I say and they make questionable remarks and I have to correct them all the time. And I had to figure out how to do that in a way that would allow them to see my perspective, but also make sure that I didn't destroy that relationship. Not necessarily even because I was like, we're going to be best friends for life, even though obviously that's the goal you would have when you go to college, but just to make sure that you know, they gained a greater understanding of how to respect people from different backgrounds. So those are my two big ones is knowing who you are before you even step into spaces where you are going to be the minority and knowing what you have to offer and how to ask for those things, but also being able to just have the discernment to say, okay, this is what I want to say, but this is how I want to say it. And then lastly, I always used to tell people, you don't get what you don't ask for. And it's that simple. No one can read your mind. No one's going to see the value in you outside of you. And it's funny that I say this because my boyfriend and I go back and forth about this, where on one hand, you know, I'll walk into certain spaces and I'm like, oh no, we are not doing this. And then I'll walk into some other spaces and I'm like, okay, I don't really know what to do here. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So um, he constantly tries to, you know, be that support system to me to tell me, no, Gabby, you're not being treated the way you're supposed to be treated don't accept that. You need to go back in there and you need to, you know, stand up for yourself. So those are like my really big three is know who you are. Make sure you know, you know, it's not what you're saying. It's how you're saying it to people, especially when you're just communicating your preferences on how they interact and engage with you. And also just making sure that ultimately at the end of the day, you just, you ask for everything because I always say, I'm like, what's the worst that happens? Someone tells you no. You know, I remember when I was up for a promotion, I told my boss like, Hey, listen, like I'm going to do this, 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 you know, I've proven myself consistently that I'm qualified for this job. You know, what, what is it that you feel like I have to do to get it? Because at this point, you know, I'm getting stagnant and I'm not comfortable being stagnant anymore. So I'm ready to go to that next level. I'm happy you just told that story and you'll see why when we get to the Dear Dr. A. But just on a couple of things you said, knowing how to maneuver those those um, contexts where you might be the only one or one of a few, that's kind of a recurring theme that we're talking about in this season of the podcast because it's so important when we get in these spaces sometimes, it's easy for us to shrink. And we never want to shrink if we're in those spaces. And I'm never one to say that we have to be the representative because that's a lot to bear to try to be the representative for Absolutely. the entire race. You can't. You, know? you right. literally can't. And when people no. expect you to be, you just kind of want to like slap them and say, well, okay, so are you speaking on behalf of the entire white race? Because if that's the case, what if you are have racist sentiments, then now you, are all white people racist? Because you know how white people always let us know. I'm not racist. I'm white and I'm not racist. I love black people. I have a black friend. And you're like, okay, well, one can't be, you know, the speaker of all. 
It, and that's absolutely correct. But I do believe that in any space, like you said, you just should be able to be your authentic self and be who you are, you know, not carrying an entire race on your back. But even just being authentic can be a challenge. So I just love that message to know who you are before you enter these spaces and just learn how to maneuver these spaces as that person. And you brought up an excellent point about institutional barriers as an organizational scientist. You know, I think a lot about what organizations can do to fix some of these things that are troubling when it comes to diversity and inclusion. But you're absolutely correct. There's only so much that the individual can do. A lot of it is on the organization, which is why I love the work I do. But organizations really need to step up. When I ask these questions, sometimes it is hard for me because I know that we could try all these things. But if the organizations don't want to change or they don't implement certain policies or inclusion strategies, then it's going to be really hard for young Black professionals. So Absolutely. It, mm-hmm. It's like global right now. So when I worked there, I was one of three Black people in an office of about 80 people. And that was Black. We did have someone who was Brazilian. He passed for someone who was, could have been white. And we did have two other women who were Lebanese and maybe, a, maybe one other guy. But even then, they were still white passing. So they pushed an initiative once Burt Bean took over as CEO. And they said, okay why aren't women advancing in the workplace as far as they should? Because women make up, I think at that time, they made up like 70% of the company, which was great because they saw that the women were the ones who were the top earners in the company. They just worked at this uh, incredible rate, especially when they were like mothers and stuff. Like they were just next level, like steroid stuff. And they were like, okay, so we have all of these women who are really successful at their jobs, but why aren't they taking these VP positions? So then they started reformatting the job descriptions. They started reformatting the requirements, you know, whether or not they had to relocate or they could just, you know, work where they live and then go travel to our headquarters in Atlanta. And they did this and they saw that it was helping women move up to those higher level positions, which is what they wanted because they saw value in having these women go up. So when I left, because I couldn't juggle the 40 or really 60 hour week job there and my 40 hour week is Miss Mass, when I left, they started pushing then the diversity and inclusivity, which is something I'd always talked about and told them, you know, I love this company. It's an amazing place to work. You guys have amazing work culture and you're an amazing support system. Why don't we have more black people? (laughs) <laughs> like all in the same breath. I love it here. You're great. You get, you help me make a lot of money. It's great. Like I love coming to work every day, but why don't we have more black people? Because if we have more black people, this place would be the prime. Like you guys would be up there, especially because now we're starting to see all these fortune 500 start pushing more women into leadership roles, like CEOs and such. And we're also starting to see more people of color you know? So it's like, for example, the person that's expected to be the next in line to become the CEO of State Street is a Latina. So how good is it for you as a corporation to have someone who looks like the person who would potentially be sitting down with the CEO one day, you know, and formulate that relationship? So I think a lot of companies, they need to be a little bit more intentional. And that's what I did appreciate about Insight Global is once the new CEO took over and the company was established to be what it was, he said, okay, there's a lot of small details that we just never even took into consideration or we didn't give it the proper attention it deserved. So now let's start to do that. Yes, that is awesome. Well, 
I'm going to be hopeful that more organizations in the coming years will follow. They will. Lead. They uh, don't have a choice if they yeah. don't die. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so in that same vein, my next question, is full-time entrepreneurship the answer for Black millennials and Gen Zers, or is corporate C-suite success kind of tangible, possible reality? So what do you normally tell people? It really depends on who you are. My boyfriend and I had this conversation because I'm going down a few business ventures myself, but I'm also still working. So, and I'm also going to school now. So there's a lot happening, a lot happening, but uh, it really depends. Are you an innovator or a renovator? And that was when he posed me with that question, I said, that's a good way of putting it. It's, you know, are you a person who can think of things creatively? So for example, my business partner, she is a creative thinker. She can come up with these elaborate plans and solutions out of thin air, right? But I'm the person who says, give me the idea, give me the plan and I'll make it work. So it really does depend. And it's not that I don't have a creative side. I do. That's how I solve problems. You have to be a creative thinker to solve problems. But I just know that if given the task of having to come up with something or work off of an idea and build upon it, that that's just who I am. So it really just depends on what side of the the like question you fall on. Because I know people, for example, my going back to my he wants to start a wealth management company at some point. So he has a strong finance background, a strong business background. And he's like, okay, this is something I love. This is something I can do. I want to be a financial advisor for athletes. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay, great. So he's going down that and he can do corporate. He's in corporate right now, but he just knows at some point he wants to build for himself and have some to leave the kids. That's just who he is. But for me, I would say it really just depends on who you are and what you are. If you feel like there's something you're really passionate about or a solution you really want to be a part of, then go for it and be an entrepreneur. Especially when you're young, you have nothing to lose. Like what is it? There's this study that shows that majority of people in the Gen Z and even millennials are still waiting for jobs that don't even exist. Like they literally are banking on the creation of a job. It really does kind of, and that's, that's, that's scary to think about. It is. Because it's like, well, what if that job never happens? You know, it's like, what if that job never becomes a thing? But they're waiting for it. So it really just depends on what your personality is. And if you're more like a left hemisphere versus a right hemisphere when it comes to your brain too. So you can tell your boyfriend that, that he has some good gems because that innovator versus renovator, I'm going to have to use that. Because that's yeah. just a really good way to think about, you know, if you're suited for entrepreneurship or at least what role you'll play in a, in a business endeavor. And I think what you're saying, the research about Gen Zers and millennials waiting for jobs that don't exist, I think that's really why we're seeing this kind of influx of businesses. And I mean, there's like 5 million podcasts mm-hmm. out there. People are using it as ways to promote their business. There's like 5 million blogs. Like we're really trying to create a space that's not currently there for us. Um, so exactly. I think we hit the nail on the head with that. You're such a skilled speaker, obviously. And you've been in the unique position of being the first to do something in a very major invisible way with your Miss Massachusetts win. What pointers do you have for Black millennials or Gen Zers who may not be as comfortable using their voices or, as you say, asking for, for it all? Well, you really just have to figure out at the end of the day, what role do you want to play? Because it's unfair of me to tell every person to speak out, to stand up, to be a speaker, to do all of these things, because that's not everyone. 
Some people are the ones who like to work behind the scenes. So it really comes down to identifying what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and how can you build upon them? So for example, if a weakness is you don't like working with people, then okay, you may not like working with people, but what are the small actionable steps that you can take to at least be able to build relationships? Because you don't make it anywhere in life without building relationships. That's literally what you need. When you go to work, you need your boss to like you. You need your coworkers to, you know, at least think that you're comparable and someone that they can work with. No one wants to deal with a difficult person. It's, it's a matter of sitting down and really being honest with yourself and saying, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And what can I do with these? Because that's really important. And ultimately, um, I have this theory that human beings, we're always in search for a few things. One of them is why do we exist? So for some people, it'd be God, other people, it's the universe, some people, it's science. We all have our own definition as to how we made it to where we are at this, po- at this moment in time. So that's one thing. The other thing is, is that I genuinely believe, and this is something that it, I've been working on with my branding even, people are constantly looking for a, a new state of knowledge or fulfillment or just like leveling up on life. Because whether it be you're a person who wants to make more money or you're a person who wants more personal development or a person who wants more professional development, we're all looking to work towards something. None of us are just existing in said, that's how we should all be living our lives is we should all have this one thing that we are like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to accomplish, whether it be professional, personal, whatever again, and work towards that and always find a way to work towards it. That's really like my big thing. It's I think that that's what we're always doing. So I think people need to focus on that. They need to say, okay, what's that one thing that I need to work towards and just work towards it? Because then that gets you to a new level. And that new level could be the thing that makes you or, or breaks you. But if even if it breaks you, it'll still teach you more about yourself. And there's this word that my friend, he taught it to me last night. And when he said this word to me and explained it to me what it was, it's like a philosophical term. I kid you not, I felt like the gates of heaven had opened. And it was like, oh, like I was like, oh my God, everything makes sense. It says metanoia. Have you ever heard of that word? I have never heard of metanoia. No, please okay. enlighten me. Yeah, so metanoia is a change in one's way of like life. And that could be through spiritual conversion or maybe it, it's essentially like that aha moment Oprah likes to talk about where you have this aha moment and you see the world completely different and you look back on your life and see everything that's ever happened completely different. So that's really like that thing that I think everyone should aspire towards is that metanoia and getting that aha moment where all of a sudden all the stars align, all the dots connect. And sometimes it takes a lot there. Like, trust me, last night we were doing all these strategy plans and we were at all these post-it notes and I was stressed (laughs) so much. But once we got to the end of it, I was like, wow, metanoia, I get it. I feel it. The world is different now. I really appreciate that. I might have to get that tattooed. And that's honestly, no lie, how Girl I feel same. doing. Yeah, right. Let's go together now. <laughs> yeah, literally. I'm like, I like the second you said it, I was like, should I get should I get this tattoo? Like Right, right. It's so right important to to know what your purpose is. And I think that's the essence of that. And honestly, that's how I feel doing this work with the podcast. I mean, I had some countering when I was telling people, some friends, some just associates about this topic. And I just feel like there's a gap there um, that people, it's, it's really in people's blind spot. They're not seeing that we have this whole generation of professionals that aren't really getting what they need as far as support and empowerment. And 
and validation as far as their collective experiences. So now that I'm talking to people like you, wonderful rock star guests, I'm really starting to understand even more like what a gap it is and how important it is to have these conversations. Gabby, this has been an awesome conversation. Like you really brightened up my whole day. Oh, um, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for much longer, but we do have to get to the Dear Dr. A for today. Before we do that, is there anything else you want to leave listeners with? Yeah. So you actually, you said something that I was like, yes, I'm glad she said this. You were talking about how young professionals don't have that support and don't have that like validation. So when I went to Miss America, my best friend, Maddie, she wrote me a bunch of different letters. And one of them, it had this little snippet and it said validation is for parking. It was like this little paragraph, but like the thing I really walked away with was validation is for parking. And when I reflected on it a little bit more and I went through my Miss America journey and I went through my Miss Mass journey and I went through where I'm at now, the big thing that I, I really want to push out there is validation is truly for parking. <laughs> like that is not something that you need. You don't need anyone to stamp a card to verify you, what you do, what you want to do, especially you doctor, you know, where, you know, I also, when I was competing, a lot of people would tell me things like, Gabby, like I, there was an article released from BBC that where I talk about my experiences being a black title holder and competing in pageants. And this was something that was in my corporate life, but it was also something that was in my pageant or personal life where people would look at me and tell me, you're not going to do anything. You know, you're nothing really that special. You're okay. If that, and everyone really did have a formulated opinion on me without truly understanding who I was. It's really important to, to teach people, I think, especially in the workspace that you don't need anyone else to sign off on what is it that you have to offer. I mean, obviously that there's certain things that you actually need people to sign off on. Hello, I think it's work. But I mean, when it comes down to you and your capabilities, you know, always be willing to take constructive feedback and implement it, but also be willing to understand that there's going to be people out there who just aren't going to see your vision. Because there were days when my mom would walk past me in the house and say, Gabriela, I don't know why you're doing this. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money and effort. You know, my grandma told me, Gabriela, they've never picked someone like you. Why would they do it now? You know, like I've heard everything in the book. I've been called everything you can think of. Like I've taken all the bullets that I could have taken considering the situation I was in. And now I'm in a space where, you know, people try to impose on me their beliefs and I just push it back out because it's again, back to my old point. It's not, it's understand what you need and what you don't need. That's my thing. It's validation is for parking. Put it on a sticky note, put it in your car, put it on your phone, whatever you got to do. Say, Gabby told me validation is for parking. I love that. And, you know, I just have to give a resounding thank you because it takes someone like you and, and me and, uh, and lots of others to be willing to take those bullets and take that criticism for someone else that's coming behind us to feel like they can do what we did or do something even better or bigger or greater. To me, that's what a lot of this is about. You know, a lot of this work in diversity inclusion should be about preparing a way for mm -hmm. future generations. And to get there, just like our parents, I mean, my parents were born in the, they're in the age of civil rights movement. Mm. You know, my mom was born in 48. My dad was born in 52. Wow. You know, their upbringing was very much influenced by King and Malcolm X. And, and that so- Cool. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I love listening to their stories. I have people my, I'm 34 and I have people my age who have parents who are younger, who were born during Gen X, but I'm so glad I have boomer parents um, who are black that can tell me these type of stories, but also it gives me a sense of pride in knowing that there's going to be some obstacles and barriers, but if they could take those shots, you know, then I could take yeah. those shots because it's just always about improving 
and making a better future for those that are coming behind us. So I'm feeling you, girl. Continue to break barriers. That's remarkable. You know? Oh my God. You are such yeah. a... I, oh, I can't... I use oh, yes. This is a clean show. You are amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> All right. So are you. Yeah. So let's get to the Dear Dr. A um, and see what we have to say about this. Dear Dr. A, I have a background as a scientist who works in the public sector. Despite wanting to work in my current capacity from the first day of grad school, my initial entry to my current workspace was bittersweet. Prior to my transition, I worked in a more traditional role. During the hiring process, I was under the impression that salary in the private sector, as well as any specialized experience, would be considered while determining my pay. Because of this, I was shocked when I realized that the pay I was being offered was well below my current pay, in fact, $40,000 less. After reading articles on negotiating salary and speaking to friends and family, I devised a plan to counter my initial offer. Upon stating that I would like to be compensated at what felt like a fair and equitable amount, I was asked to report the amount of hours I'd worked in the private sector. To further complicate this request, I was informed that any hours worked in my training would not be considered. After submitting this information, I was informed that the pay that they first quoted me stood. During a phone call, the individual communicating the denial of my counter offer sounded blatantly confused and apologetic. Although I felt the pay was unfair and questioned the reasoning of my being new, I was set on taking the job. To my dismay, I later found out that a male non-Black classmate that graduated at the same time Mm -hmm. as me and entered the same company came in at a drastically higher pay than me. Oh, yeah. I also learned that the process of asking for hours worked was not a traditional one and that multiple coworkers had not been asked to provide this information. Despite eventually receiving promotions, I still had to work there knowing I will always be steps behind my colleagues with the same experience and that my experience and education were severely undervalued as a result of being a black woman. Wow. So I heard you kind of, yeah, I heard you give some agreement as I talked. I mean, this is, I personally have experienced a situation like this when I worked a nonprofit. I just couldn't get up the offer that they first gave me, you know, was lower than what they were paying the person who was currently in the position. She was on her way out. And so I countered it and still they weren't able to, or they weren't willing, I should say, to bring me up to exactly what she was making. And I just couldn't understand it. We had, I was even more highly educated than she was. I had a master's degree at the time. She didn't. Now she was a person of color, but she was not a black woman. And I just couldn't figure any other reason I mean, okay, there's always budgeting reasons, but if you could sustain her salary, you know, you could sustain the exact same salary when yeah. she left. So I, I can feel this story. What do you think? Oh, there are so many levels to this. Okay, so my thoughts are, well, when negotiating salaries, because I worked as a recruiter, you never want to be the person that throws the first number out. You always want to say, you know, what's the competitive rate? And then obviously if it's too if it's too below, what is it that they are asking for that, or what is that you're looking for? Excuse me. Then you obviously want to tell them, well, you know, this is what I was, this is what I was looking for. And also just explaining to them why it wouldn't make sense for you to accept a salary that it is that they're offering. So in this case, right, since she was as educated as the male white counterpart that was hired after her, was that right? Yes. Male, non-black. So we can assume that he, well, we know he wasn't black. I'm not sure what his ethnicity was. Okay. 
What I would always say is never, the kiss of death is always throwing the first number down in anything. So you never want to throw the first number down. But I always like to tell people, I'm like, you know what? I understand how much it is that you're supposed to be getting paid. And then go and explain to them why it doesn't make sense for you to be getting paid what it is that they're offering. And then if they're not willing to give you what it is that you're looking for, then you know what? Job descriptions can change. So you can ask them that, okay, well, if that is what you're seeking to compensate me at, then let's get the job description and the duties and responsibilities that I'll have. Because if you are offering me this amount of money and asking me to do this amount of work, that just doesn't accordly. You need, you need to at some point, you know, set the standard where, you know, I'm not going to overwork and be underpaid, especially when you have someone in my exact same position being compensated appropriately, but doing the exact same level of work. That's where I think it gets really, really tricky. And also I think doing research on companies before you work for them, because it's, it sounded like she wanted to work in the public sector, right? Is that what she said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like working in the public sector too. It means that there is a lot of flexibility and you have to understand that you may want to work in that industry, but it may not make sense for you to work in that industry at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's kind of one of those things where you have to know when to fold. So if it means you folding and pulling back and saying, okay, well, you know what? I know that this is how much I'm worth. And if you guys don't want to pay it, then I'll take my talents elsewhere. Then do that. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if they offered you the job, that means they see value in having you. And a lot of the times companies, they play that game where they try to give you a really low number because, but that's just because that's their pre preference of what they will pay you. Not necessarily, like what you said, what they can afford, like in your situation. So sometimes you need to say, I'm going to walk away. Because when a company has a difficult time filling that position, I guarantee you, you will be the first call out. It's kind of like when you're buying a, use, a car and you go to the car dealership and you negotiate a price and you say, I'm not going to pay anything over 16000 And they tell you like, oh, well you know, well, we're, we can't do that. And you say, okay, well, I'll take my business elsewhere. And you walk away and all of a sudden the car dealer guys like, wait, 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 okay, okay, fine. We'll give you 16K. Like I've seen that happen multiple mm -hmm. times. So it, it's like similar concept where you almost have to call people's bluffs. And, and even if for whatever reason, let's say they really let you go and they never call you back, then understanding that it's not that that's not necessarily the space that you shouldn't be in, but maybe you just shouldn't be there at that time. So sometimes people have to be a little bit more strategic and understand what is my long-term goal? Because if my long-term goal is to work within the public space, then that might be something I do, but it may not be something I can do right now. But it doesn't mean that you have any less value to add to that space. Well, two things, Gabby. I promise you I'm going to use the car shopping analogy from like now on because that's so true. I mean, and I talked about this in another episode, especially now with the globalization and the consumer base is becoming so diverse, you know, companies are after diverse talent. They might not have the best in inclusion strategies once you get in there, but they, for the most part, they see the business case of diversifying mm -hmm. their workforce. But what you're saying about strategy, like it's so important to have these conversations because these aren't things we learn in school. These aren't things we teach us. You know, we have to help each other. Yep. When it comes to getting paid what we're worth, we really do have to be strategic. And like you said, sometimes we do have to go a different path than, than we originally wanted just to get what we worth. But I'm definitely a proponent of in no circumstance. I mean, everyone has things that they have to do. Like people have to feed their families. They have to make money. I got bills to pay. I get it. But to the, the least amount possible, should you dim yourself or shrink yourself, as I said earlier, because there is someone out there willing to pay you what you're worth in some sector. So Exactly. Keep your head up, young lady. 
and do don't take it. <laughs> yeah, right. it's one of those things where I always say it. I'm like, you know, being a black woman must be so difficult because we already know that women are discriminated against, and then mm-hmm. black people and people of color discriminate against. But being a black woman, like, not. I don't mean this to sound offensive, even though I can see how it would, but it's like black women are almost on the bottom of the totem pole, mm-hmm. not because of who they are, but because of the way that the system is structured. And that's so unfair. And that's why seeing things like right now where we have a black Miss America, a black Miss USA, a black Miss Teen USA, a black Miss Universe, and now we have a black Miss world, right? And all these women are really intelligent, very successful, you know, have their careers, what have you. And it's like seeing those kinds of examples, it's like, it's, I'm hoping. And I said this in my, in my BBC interview where I said, I'm hoping that it helps give people that confidence, kick them up a notch and yes. say, no, 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 I'm not at the bottom of the totem pole. I'm at the top. But if you guys don't want to acknowledge it, that's okay. Validation is for parking. I'm going to show you. <laughs> exactly. I love that analogy. Once again, having those examples, as we talked about earlier, that representation is so important. Gabriella, once again, it's been so wonderful to talk. To. I know we could keep this conversation going for days. Seriously. So, <laughs> so next time, Let's talk about everything. Yes. So next time I'm uh, in the Boston area, I'm definitely going to hit you up. And yes. Um, and talk. But for now, it's goodbye. And I'll see you on the outside. See you on the outside.